All right, we're in Luke chapter 9. We're going to talk about challenges on the road of discipleship. Now, let me, before I read our passage, and today we're going to highlight just wrestling with the own, our own unbelief, the unbelief we have in our own hearts. Let me try to frame what's going on in Luke chapter 9. I want you to think about through some of the stories that you know, whether films or, um, or even books, where people are moving towards a destination. And along the way, there are certain challenges. It's a very hopeful destination. It's a destination that holds out a lot uh, in store for them and a lot of hope. But along the way, they find themselves just dealing and wrestling with certain challenges. So think about the Wizard of Oz, for example. The yellow brick road is the path that must be taken. Dorothy and his band are moving towards Oz. But along the way, they have to deal with the challenges. They have to deal with confronting their own discouragement. They have to deal with things like lions and birds and flying monkeys and things like that. There's a lot of challenges along the road until they make it to Oz. Think about Lord of the Rings, where the group is moving towards the destination together. But as they move towards this hopeful destination, again, they wrestle with a a lot of just pitfalls and challenges. They have to wrestle again with their own discouragement, attacks from the outside, all kinds of things before they make it to the proper destination. And so if you can understand this theme that runs through a lot of literature here in the West, you can understand Luke chapter 9, because that's exactly what's taking place with Jesus and the Twelve. Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. He's in Galilee. He's moving for the hopeful destination of Jerusalem. But along the way, there are challenges the disciples are going to have to meet. Things that are going to grow them and stretch them. And I think every Christian can identify with the five or six challenges we're going to talk about. We're only going to highlight one or two this week. The first one is going to be unbelief. And by the way, you have to kind of see the discipleship almost in rings. So you have Jesus at the center, you have the 12 apostles as like the inner ring, then you have about 70 or 72 disciples that are very committed to Christ, he's going to send them out in chapter 10, and then a little bit further out you have a semi-committed group, this is like the feeding of the 5,000, you have 1,000 people or so, and among them you have all kinds of skeptics and scribes and Pharisees, so you almost have to see in rings, and this whole band is moving together towards Jerusalem kind of taking one step, gathering steam as they go from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the first challenge is unbelief. I want to read the passage to you beginning in verse 37 of Luke 9. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, the Spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son to me. And while he was coming, a demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, let's talk about the story, then we'll get into the concept of unbelief a little bit. The first thing is, and I I think this might be, there's a whole sermon in verse 37. We don't have time to preach, but I just want to give it to you so you can meditate on it a little bit. And it sounds like, here's here's the story. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So where were they prior to this event? 
What is the mount? That's the Mount Transfiguration. You know, in all three Gospels, the, same, the story works the same way. Jesus takes, the three, takes Peter, James, and John up Mount Transfiguration. There they are on top of the mountain. They see Jesus, Moses, and Elijah in a glorified state. And then immediately, the next day, they come down the mountain, and they're confronted by their own unbelief. And what's happening here is they're being rudely brought back to the present. And the point to appreciate in this passage is this. Nobody lives on Mount Transfiguration, not in this life. We all have to deal with the reality of this fallen world. There are points when you have such an amazing amount of peace in your life, and you feel like everything is just coming together. You feel like, remember the old records? They played on different speeds, 45 and 33, you know? I got a record player. That's why I'm thinking about this now, right? And the record is spinning at, you know, 45, and it sounds like the song, and it sounds so nice, and then you change the speed, and you're like, I know that song, but it doesn't sound right. Sometimes it seems like our lives are on the right speed. It feels like everything is in harmony together. Everything's fine at work. Everything's fine at home. I just feel a certain peace in my life, and and then all of a sudden you wake up, and you're rudely brought back to reality. And the song is on a different speed. And things aren't all okay. Some things are okay, but not everything is okay. The disciples are being rudely brought back to reality. They have this amazing moment with Jesus on the top of the mountain. No doubt they want to stay there forever. That's why Peter said, let's make booths so Elijah can stay here with us. Peter doesn't want to come down. And as soon as he comes down, the disciples here are moved with unbelief. And they're rudely brought back to the real world. Raphael, in his painting of Transfiguration, which I have on the, uh, on the screen behind me, depicts this event brilliantly. And he brings together the importance of both events. You see on the top of the mountain there, that's Mount Transfiguration. And by the way, it works this way in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's Jesus on the top. You've got Moses on his left and Elijah on his right, just like the story tells The next level down, you have the three disciples who went with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they are just seeing this amazing vision of Jesus, getting a beautiful picture of hope. No doubt everything feels perfect in their lives at this moment. But notice at the bottom of the mountain what's taking place. There's the poor demon-possessed boy. His mouth is open. He's raving. He's mad. There's a desperate father that's surrounded by disciples and scribes that can't help. Raphael here in this painting, a transfiguration, masterfully captures the contrast in the Gospel of Luke. The glorious mountaintop experience that gives way to the rudeness of the real world. And all of us kind of walk this road, don't we? You can't live on the mountaintop forever. And I'm not sure we should really try either. It's a call to take our work to the real world. Uh, C.C. Studd, is, he's an old missionary. He's a famous cricket player. Uh, he gave up a lot of his wealth to go out and do some gospel ministry in some needy parts of the world. He said this. He said, some want to live their life within the sound of the church bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And C.T. Studd, I think he's on to something here. <laughs> you can't live on Mount Transfiguration. You'll be there someday. See, that's the point of the mountain, right? You're going to be there someday. Someday Jesus returns. Someday he takes his people back. Someday we are with him forever. But there is cross before crown. 
And in this life, those moments of bliss that we feel like we're having, where there's just peace in our hearts, we are rudely brought back to reality like that. And that's okay. You know why? Because that's where God wants us. He doesn't want us always within the sound of the church bell. He wants us within a yard of hell. Because that's where the gospel work takes place. Down in the real world, with real hurting people, just like Jesus' disciples are dealing with in this passage. Verse 38 and 39 is the demon possession. The man comes from the crowd. Jesus comes down. He says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. That word look means have regard for my child. Heal my child. A spirit is seizing him. He cries out. It convulses him. He foams at the mouth. He shatters. It would hardly leave him. And the picture here is that it kind of leaves him for a minute or it feels like it does. Then the demon comes back and torments the boy more. And then it feels like it leaves him for five minutes and comes back. There's just no rest for this poor child. And the father, like every good father, is totally distressed by this. This, by the way, is the passage. It's not in Luke, but I bet you know it from Mark. Remember there's a place where a man looks at Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's this man here. He does that in Mark. By the way, that's a beautiful prayer to pray when you don't know what to pray. When you're dealing with something in your life that is so heavy in your heart and you're just wavering in your faith to cry out to God, I believe, help thou my unbelief. It's a beautiful prayer that we pray to the Lord. Lord, I know you can do this, but man, I'm struggling to really believe that. Come into my life in a special way and give me the faith I need. I believe, help thou my unbelief. I don't want to take a lot of time to talk about demon possession. We actually did this several weeks ago and I gave you some thoughts. I just give you a general caution here. The Bible does not say that much about demon possession. We have some information, but it's not like we have three volumes on this stuff. And so I just like to tell the congregation, when people tell you they know a lot about demon possession, they know very little about demon possession. (laughs) Because very few of us know much about demon possession. And so don't buy that three-volume work that you're seeing advertised online or in the bookstore. Matthew uses the word moonstruck. The Greek word is lunatic. Lunatic. So we get the English word lunatic. It means moonstruck in the original language. They used to believe that the moon affected the moods of people. They didn't believe in the first century, but years earlier they did, and the word kind of stuck. There's a crisis of faith in verse 40. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now again, in another gospel, Jesus looks at the disciples and says this. Here's why you can't cast it out. This time, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. And Jesus rebukes their faith. He says, you twisted generation. Now who's he talking to here? He's probably not talking to the Father, because the Father's not a generation. He might be talking to the crowds. He might be addressing his disciples this way. More likely, he's just addressing everybody there. (laughs) You twisted generation. You're faithless. None of you have the faith that God requires of you. And he answers in verse 41, O faithless and twisted generation, how how long must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now notice verse 42 before we get into some applications. While, While the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. One of the things you learn about evil here, evil in the abstract or frankly evil in Satan form, is that evil never lets go without a fight. You find this throughout the Gospels. 
that when Jesus confronts evil, it's almost like there's one last grasp for that soul before it's redeemed. (laughs) While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Evil's one final grab for the soul of this child before Jesus sets him free. As a pastor, you get to hear a lot of testimonies from people who share about how God has healed them, God has redeemed them, God has worked in their lives. You start to hear a lot of things that people have in common in their stories. And I can tell you, the one that I identify and I identify with personally, one last grasp. That just before someone gives their life to Christ, or just before they begin to follow God in an area of life that's been tough for them, how they will tell you that it was the toughest week of their life. It was the toughest moments of their life. They almost felt like they were literally being attacked by the world or by the devil or something along those lines. Again, in Mark, the demon kicks back. He won't come out easy. Jesus says, this one only comes out with prayer and fasting. In other words, there's something different about this situation that the disciples have not experienced before. And they're taking for granted this is just a run-of-the-mill event with another demon possession like they've done before. Now, a couple thoughts about when our faith fail. Let's talk about the failure, and then let's talk about how Jesus rescues us from this failure. Let's talk about who fails, when they fail, and how they fail. And then we'll talk about the rescue. First of all, who fails? Well, everybody fails. <laughs> Even the strongest among us is prone to seasons of failure. It's kind of a feeling that we Christians have. There are, there are some people that will fail in their faith, and they're going to have moments and seasons of unbelief. And then there are certain people that just won't. They're just too big to fall. They, they just stand on such solid ground. Like the Peter, Jameses, and the Johns, the Matthews, the Thomases, the Pauls, the Moses, the Abrahams. Like certain people may fail in their faith, but not people like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. And we might even apply that to the church. Like I understand this person here or that person, and maybe even I'll fall away, but there are people sitting among me, they would never deny Christ, they would never fall, they would never have a season of spiritual failure in their lives. But what we find is this. If this can happen, remember the the rings? The disciples are on the inside, and then you have the 70 apostles, and then you have a, a a couple thousand people following Jesus. You would think that if the failure came, it would be on that outer ring, wouldn't you? Where do we see the failure in this? Where do we see the unbelief? It's not on the fringes. It's the inner circle. It's the 12. I can only tell you that if the 12 apostles can have a season of unbelief, a season of failure. The same can be true of any one of us. That's why the scriptures tell us to take heed lest we fall. Failure of faith, even seasons of failure, they're not unique to you. They're not unique to me. This is not condoning it. This is just saying you're not the first to fail in your faith. You're not the first to be moved with unbelief. The great C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I cannot tell you how much spiritual strength I have gotten from C.S. Lewis over the years. This guy puts things in a way that I could not come up with in 200 years, I'm telling you, you know? And I look at someone like that, and I'm like, I can see myself having some unbelief. There's no way he was ever moved with unbelief. And yet, read carefully. C.S. Lewis sent a letter to a friend, Arthur Greaves. The trouble with me, he says, is lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convince me of God's existence. 
He goes on to say, but I so often feel like the reasonableness of my mind lets me down. Now, let me give you one more thought before we press on. Even when you and I fail in our faith, whether it's a moment or a season of unbelief, that does not have to identify us as failures in faith. A season of faith doesn't mean that you're a failure spiritually in a God's eyes at all. Uh, one of the things you notice about the disciples here is they, verse 44, right? What does it say? Verse 44. Um, uh, oh, excuse me. Verse uh, in, in the passage, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. And yet, what do they do in the next chapter? Remember what they do in the next chapter? Chapter 10, 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead two by two to every town, every place. He said, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few, therefore pray earnestly that they go into the harvest. And what do they end up doing? They end up casting out demons. The failure in chapter 9 gives way to a remarkable victory in chapter 10. The seasons of failure that you and I feel, that does not have to mark us out for life unless we allow it to mark us out for life. I'll tell you one of my favorite passages in Scripture is Romans chapter 4, where Paul recounts the story of Abraham. Remember the story of Abraham? True or false, Abraham struggled with his faith. True. He struggled to the point where he did not, at a moment in his life, believe the promise of God, and he concocted some scheme to try to bring about the promise of God by himself. That's the story with Hagar, and eventually Ishmael and Isaac, and you know the story. He had a moment of failure in his life. Remember what Paul says about Abraham? Abraham, get this, staggered not at the promise of God. Let it sink in. Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. Did he stagger at the promise of God or not? Well, i got to be honest. When I read the story, it sure sounds like it. But when Paul looks at the whole of Abraham's life, he does not see that moment of unbelief as marking Abraham out as some kind of failure. And we need to make sure that we're careful about that. Abraham's catastrophic failure does not mark him out as such. And when you and I fail in our faith, when we're moved with unbelief, we need to press on. We need to get past those moments and not feel like, even if it's a catastrophic failure, even if it's a failure publicly, like we're going to find the disciples doing here, we don't have to let that mark us out. We are his people. He restores us. Number two, when do they fail? Well, I can only tell you, for the disciples and maybe for you, maybe me, failure in faith comes at the most inopportune times, doesn't it? (laughs) In this passage, they fail before at least three different audiences. Number one, they fail before the faith community. There's a whole bunch of disciples watching on. There's probably the 70 and probably a number more. Remember Joanna? Mary Magdalene, the women, Susanna, they're there. And the disciples come over, they're going to cast this demon out, and nothing happens. In fact, they may even make the situation worse. They fail before the faith community. Okay, that's not bad enough. They fail before the casual observers. It tells us here that Jesus comes down to a great crowd. No doubt that great crowd is just a number of people following Jesus. Some are committed. Some are just onlookers. This is just a general community. But if it can't get any worse, here it does. They actually, Mark tells us, fail before the skeptics. An argument takes place with the disciples and the scribes. This is an embarrassing moment for the twelve. 
Spiritual failure is one thing, but spiritual failure before the world is another thing. And that's what happens with the 12. It comes at the most inopportune time. Your spiritual failure doesn't mark you out as a failure for life. And even if it comes at the most inopportune time, God restores us from that. The moments of embarrassment, the moments you make terrible decisions and send your life on a bad trajectory, you do not need to be marked and identified by those. Jesus restores us. All right, here's the most important point. How do they fail? And here we learn the danger of living life apart from God. They fail because of good old classic overconfidence. I want to take you back to the story of Mark. Jesus comes down the mountain, transfiguration. There's a demon-possessed boy. The disciples can't cast him out. They have no idea why they can't. Jesus says, you lack faith. This kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. And that's the disciples' mistake. They think this is another run-of-the-mill kind of exorcism, and they are now living life apart from the strength of God. Jesus says there are certain things that you will not be able to handle in this life unless you lean on me with prayer, and in this case, fasting. One writer I read gives a story of a swimmer, a strong swimmer. They make their way out into the ocean for the first time, mostly swimming in pools. Now they're in the ocean. And they swim almost all the way across the bay, and they do a good job. The ocean is exhilarating, the giant waves are rolling overhead, but she is full of energy. A week later, that same swimmer comes into the water and with great confidence begins to swim, this time all the way across the bay. Swimming with confidence, but it isn't long before she gets exhausted and feels like she's making absolutely no progress. So the swimmer screams out for help. And the lifeguard finally makes it to her. On the beach, she's wrapped in a towel, mug in hand, and says, I don't understand. It was so easy last week, but so impossible today. And the lifeguard answers the question by saying, the tides run differently each day. And while the surface of the water may look the same, you can never tell what's going on underneath. And that's why we tell people never to take it alone. That's what's happening with the disciples. This looks like just another good old-fashioned ministry they're going to perform. We've done this a million times. We can go deal with this by ourselves right now. And they try to take it up in their own strength. But there are certain tides that Jesus identifies underneath the surface in this event that the disciples are frankly not prepared for. This kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. This kind you need to especially lean on me for, Jesus says. The disciples here are guilty of overconfidence and they've lost their sense of urgency. I'm reminded of a story of a a boy who wants to buy a bike. He doesn't have enough money. Six years old. He's got $3 to his name. And so his father takes him to the store and he picks out that red bike that he wants so badly. He proudly rolls it up to the counter The father is standing back about five feet. Little boy reaches into his pocket, puts that $3 down on the counter and shakes his head like this. The father is behind the boy and gives a wink to the cashier. And the cashier says, take the bike. Bike's yours. He keeps the $3. Of course, the father pays him the balance on the way out. The little boy is so excited that he paid for that bike all by himself. And so there he is next week again. This time he's by himself, and he walks through the aisles and puts all kinds of toys in the cart, you know. 
He puts all kinds of toys and rolls it up to the counter and, oh, the cashier rings it up and it comes to some $64 or something like that. He pulls all the money out of his pockets and puts it down proudly, shakes his head like this. And, of course, the cashier says, that's not enough. And the boy says, yeah, it was last week. And he says, yeah, the problem is your daddy is not with you this time. And the disciples are experiencing something like this. We've done this before. And it's almost as if the world is looking back saying, this time your daddy's not with you. This kind can only come out with prayer and fasting. Let me give you a couple of notes of encouragement here. I want to close with just a couple thoughts of encouragement when we find ourselves failing in faith. Number one, it is often at the the bottom of failure that we experience Jesus' power, his love, and his grace. The disciples fail miserably. They fail before each other. They fail before the world. They fail before the people trying to embarrass them, the scribes. But Jesus will not let them down. And right when they are at the end of themselves, he's ready to pull them up. And there is no failure in your life that God will not reach into your life and rescue you from. We find ourselves in that dark pit of despair. That's where Jesus reaches down to us in a special way. I'm reminded of Peter walking on water. His faith is strong. His eyes are on Christ. But eventually the winds and the waves get to him. You know the story. And he starts to sink. And yet when he begins to sink, just as the waves and the water is about to go over his head, the hand reaches down and pulls him up. And it's none other than Jesus can't tell you how many times in my life I've experienced something like that. And I imagine if we had time for testimonies, a number of you would say the same thing. I sink on my own, but Jesus pulls me up every time. He's always there for us. Second thing I just want to leave us with is do not let our past failures keep us from being everything God wants us to be today. We are not marked by our failures. We are marked by Christ. We're not there yet. But again, in chapter 10, Jesus is going to send these disciples out. And in verse 17, what does he say? He says, the 72 returned, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, why would this be so important to the 72 disciples? You want to know why? Because they just failed the night before. (laughs) They couldn't cast one out. They tried, but they failed. But they didn't let him hold it back from present ministry. It's something they learned from. And then they went out. And, it's, and they come back. And there, there were so many things they could have said. Even the diseases are healed in your name. Provision in your name. People are being saved in your name. But this one in particular struck out to them. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. The failures have a way of demoralizing us. But we don't have to feel that power. We can be encouraged. We can repent. We can move on. And we shouldn't let those stop us. You know what the admonition is when I read this passage in the chapter 10? Press on. Press on. Forget those things which are behind and move forward in the will of God. Do not let past failures and discouragements keep you from being everything that God wants you to be today. 
God, thank you for your, your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for restoring the apostles. That's an example that you restore us. We need your help, Lord. We need your strength. Oh, we make so many mistakes. We make so many sins. We are truly an imperfect people. And Lord, I pray that you would not let our failures define who we are. The world is going to try to define us by those failures. No doubt the scribes tried to do that with the disciples here. But Jesus restores. And in your eyes, we are in Christ. Help us to be encouraged and strengthened. I pray, Lord, for those of us that feel like we have let you down, feel like we've maybe sinned away our day of grace, give each the encouragement today to press on, to move forward in your will. Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, before we celebrate communion together, I just want to give us as a church the opportunity to confess our failures, confess our sins. Maybe at this very moment, you're in a season of unbelief. You're struggling with unbelief. Why not give that to God? Why not let Jesus meet you right in that failure? Lift you up like he did Peter in that moment. Your head bowed and your eyes closed. I want to give you a couple minutes silencing the auditorium. Just pray your heart to God. Confess our sins. Let's tell him things that we would not dare tell the person next to you. And let's thank him for his forgiveness and his restoration. He is there for you. Know that. Claim that. Believe that. Take a minute, friend. Our God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus, our great redeemer and restorer. Pray to speak to our hearts in a special way. Remind us of the cross and the resurrection this morning. That you died on a cross for our sins. You were raised from the dead for our justification. And your word says, no good thing will you withhold from those that walk uprightly. Help us to walk upright through the power of Jesus. Not our strength, but our strength is in Christ. For those today that feel like they're up against something that is just too strong, remind us that this kind cannot come out with prayer and fasting. So we commit ourselves to you afresh and realize that when we come to the counter, our daddy must always be with us. We call you by our side. We walk by your side. Give us the grace, give us the strength, give us the encouragement and the hope. And I pray as we take the Lord's Supper together, it'd be a good reminder that you died for us and therefore you will never leave us to forsake us. In Jesus' name, amen.